I'm Martin Sullivan. I'm director of the National Portrait Gallery, so it's my privilege to welcome you uh, and to introduce uh, our speakers this afternoon. Ambassador Young, of course, uh, we all uh, know and recognize uh, the great work he's done over the course of a distinguished career uh, at the local and regional levels, certainly for the city of Atlanta, certainly in the United States Congress, certainly in the administration of the United States as our ambassador to the United Nations, and certainly in terms of the continuing leadership that he exerts here and around the world. He is going to be having a chat uh, with a close friend of his, uh, Jack Watson. Jack has uh, three distinctions that are probably pretty important for this afternoon. Uh, first of all, Jack's my boss. Jack is the chairman <laughs> of the National Portrait Gallery Commission, who are the private citizens who oversee the portrait gallery and his work. Uh, Jack is also the donor of the wonderful portrait that we are placing today in our long-term exhibition, Struggle for Justice in the United States. And Jack has been extraordinarily generous in doing that. And Jack is also a fellow at Latin. Hey, I think there are some people here from Atlanta. Shout it out. All right. All right. Yeah, I see you. <laughs> and uh, a fellow leader of the Carter administration. Uh, when the state of Georgia was more amply and certainly uh, more uh, aggressively uh, represented at the national level in the White House. Uh, and so Jack, as an Atlantan and as former chief of staff to President Carter and as chairman of the Portrait Gallery, uh, will engage the conversation. So without further ado, let me present uh, the Honorable Jack Watson and Ambassador Andrew Young. Thank you very much, Marty, and welcome to everybody. We're so glad to have you here. Included among all of you here are uh, Andy's wife, Carolyn McLean Young, uh, his four children, Andrea, Lisa, Paula, and Bo, and seven, it's actually seven and a third grandchildren. <laughs> it, and we're so honored to have all of them with us. This is a very special occasion for me personally. There are three ways we might have gone about this, this unveiling of Andrew's, Andrew's portrait. We could have invited some former colleagues, people who've worked with Andy over the years, friends and distinguished people to come in and pay tribute to him. That would be both interesting and informative. It's also sort of the conventional way to do something like this. Or we could, we could have asked Andy himself to give a speech. I've heard lots of speeches by Andy in the last 40 years, and I can honestly tell you that I've never listened to one that I didn't learn something. 
and that I didn't enjoy. Andy's speeches are <clears throat> a marvelous mix of education, insights, social and political insights, historical asides, philosophical musings, and of course, always references to the scripture. Andy has been a minister, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ for over 55 years. He was ordained in 1955. And he is beneath everything a preacher. The reason I wanted to do it this way, having a conversation with him, was because if I asked him to give a speech, he'd give a wonderful speech, but it wouldn't be much about him. And while practically all of us in this audience know who he is in terms of what he's done, he is, after all, an American icon. Civil rights leader, Lieutenant Martin Luther King, congressman from the 5th Congressional District in Atlanta, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, mayor of the great city of Atlanta, international businessman, statesman, diplomat, author, producer of award-winning documentaries. Do you all know that? We know those things about him. But my question, reading the resume, is who in the world is this guy? (laughs) So that's what I want to talk about today with Andy. Andy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out who is this guy. (laughs) Oh, and I, I should say one more thing, too. Uh, Andy does not have a clue about what I'm going to ask him. <laughs> to say this is unrehearsed is, a, is an understatement. So, among other things, y'all... Can I be- say something about you first? <laughs> <laughs> because in 1970, I went to see Harry Belafonte about raising some funds, and we were talking about... Uh, somebody running for Congress that would represent all of the people and all of a sudden he picked up the phone and called his wife and said, find out if Sidney Poitier and Lena and maybe uh, uh, Alan King are free for the same weekend. Uh, We're going to have a benefit. Well, I thought it was for SCLC. And when Julie asked him what for, she said, he said, Andy's running for Congress. (laughs) That was the first I'd heard of it. (laughs) But Alan Lowenstein, who was a friend of mine and a friend friend of Jack's, knew that Jack was also considering a run for the same congressional seat. And he went to see Jack and said, 
I really wish you wouldn't run against Andy, but you withdraw and support Andy. Now, I don't know how many people would do that, especially when it didn't seem like I had a chance. The district was 31% black, uh, and uh, Georgia had not changed that much. Uh, but Jack withdrew and supported me, and uh, our careers have been tied together ever since because it turned out I didn't win, but won the second time. And he became a part of a law firm that uh, um, really took off. Uh, and then uh, he got involved with President Carter's campaign. And uh, I think together we helped elect President Carter. And he ended up as the chief of staff at the White House. Andy, that's enough. <laughs> Andy, you were born on March 12, 1932, to Andrew Jackson Young and Daisy Fuller Young. Tell us a little bit about your parents and about growing up in New Orleans. Well, I was blessed with wonderful parents. Um, for one thing, they had both uh, had an opportunity to get an education, and on my father's side... You know, for I mean, my father, grandfather was a teacher and uh, accountant, a financier, or something, and uh, so they they had a commitment to education. And the only way they got an education, my father, my father was here at Howard in 1921, uh, but in 1911, my grandfather was running. Uh, four Masonic lodges, burial societies or something, uh, and had several billion dollars in the bank in Franklin, Louisiana. Uh, and I don't know, how, where, I've been still trying to find out where that came from. But, <laughs> but there, was, there was always a commitment to education which came from New England missionaries who came south uh, during and after the Civil War. So my parents always said, somebody gave us an education. You're going to get an education. And what you do with it is you've got to make sure that those blessings are passed on. So more than anything else I heard, to those to whom much has been given, of them is much required. Yes. Not expected. <laughs> required. Yes. Yes. Andy, uh, I know from reading about you and talking to you over the years, that you weren't a particularly good student. Well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I would say I was a bad student. <laughs> but I say I, I really enjoyed my studies, um, and the things I liked, I, I learned. But I knew my father was insisting that I be a dentist, I knew I didn't want to be a dentist, but I love biology, I love chemistry, I love physics. Uh, but um, I was also too young to be in school, and it was—it seemed to me the more be more important to become a good man rather than a learned man. Andy went to college first to Dillard University, and then transferred. Um, 
to up here to Howard and when he was 15. He graduated from Howard in 1951 mm-hmm. at the age of 19. Uh, you want, I, I, I saw an interview with you one time, Andy. It's a long time ago, but I, I remember what you said. You said if, uh, if you can deal with Howard University women, you can deal with women anywhere in the world. <laughs> Well, it, was, it wasn't just Howard University women. If you, I mean, what Howard did for me was it really did expose me to the world. Uh, Howard was a very broad-based institution, but I, I got my dealing with people education in New Orleans because there was an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on the next, and the Nazi party was on the third corner. And so before I was in kindergarten, my father had to explain to me about racism and white supremacy. And his business involved him with many people who were Jews who were very sensitive to the fact that the Nazis were on the corner. And, and so my father took me to see Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics on the television, on screen, on movie tone news. And Jesse Owens won four gold medals, and Hitler was photographed stomping out in anger. And he said, you don't get mad with white supremacists. He said, that's a sickness. And you don't get mad with sick people. You figure out how to help them. It's not, that it's not their fault, see, that they don't know any better. Uh, Martin Luther King continued that, a similar line, that nobody can be blamed for being born white, uh, and there's no advantage, really, morally, that you were born black. Uh, you were born. And our job is, to, because we were born in an unequal, unfunctional, unproductive situation, it was our job not to blame anybody, but to find a way to change the situation. Andy, after you graduated in 1951... You were driving back to New Orleans, and you stopped off, I think, at a, at a religious camp. And you had what you yourself have described as a religious conversion. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was, you know, I didn't want to stop at a religious conference. Uh, but it was segregated, and you couldn't stay in motels, and that was one place where we could stay. My church uh, pastor... Uh, happened to be there, and uh, a lot of people from my church, so my parents wanted to stop and spend a day there. I didn't want to particularly, but I went out while they were in the class, and I I just took a run. And um, it was, there was a mountain not far, and I, I was in very good condition. I'd been on the swimming team and the track team, and Stayed in shape all year round for the last three years. And that's the only thing, reason why I say I, I, I wasn't totally sorry. Because, um, because of my athletic interests, I never smoked, I never drank. And uh, I, I even tried to eat right. Uh, but I ran to the top of the mountain and was totally exhausted. And in trying to catch my breath, you know, I, I looked out and uh, 
everything just seemed to be orderly and purposeful. And, and it just hit me. If there is order and purpose in the world for everything else, there's got to be some purpose for me. And I didn't know what it was, but when I came down from that mountain, I just knew that there was a purpose for me. And my job wasn't to do anything but seek that purpose. Yes. Mm-hmm. You went to Hartford Theological Seminary in Connecticut. And in, the, in I think, the summer of 1954, you well, went... Let me just take one little... Yeah, sure. Because... I didn't volunteer to go to Hartford Seminary, see? Uh, my, my pastor asked me to drive with him to Texas because he, had just, he was from Yale Divinity School and he was scared of the South and he was going up in the panhandle in Texas to a, a church conference, an interdenominational conference uh, with the National Council of Churches and he wanted me to drive with him. Well, I drove with him because my roommate lived in San Antonio, which he said... We were going near San Antonio. Well, uh, in Texas, San Antonio was 200 miles away, uh, and we hadn't seen anybody black since we left Houston. Uh, And he said, Andy, you're not going to leave me here with all these white people. (laughs) I said, no, I'll stay a day or two. Somebody else, some other black folk are supposed to come. But for the first time in my life, I met white people Students from University of Texas, from Texas Christian, uh, SMU, uh, and most of them said that if their parents knew they were there, uh, one young lady who said her father was the sheriff in the next county, and she said, I hope he doesn't hear about this because he will disown me, put me out of the house, and not pay my rest of my college. And I realized that here was a group of young white people who were defying their southern traditions uh, because of their Christian faith. And I'd never met any Christians who were that serious about their Christian faith. And all of them wanted to be missionaries somewhere and do something for somebody else. And, I, you know, that never, that wasn't part of the teaching at Howard. You were supposed to be the biggest and the best and the first and the baddest. You know, anything and everything. Uh, but there wasn't a tradition to do something for others. And here I was confronted by that tradition. So they asked me to volunteer uh, to work with them for six months. And I said, sure. And they sent me to Connecticut. Okay. And I was on the Hartford Seminary campus because that's where they sent me to live. And I went to the dean and asked him if I could sit in on some classes because I didn't know anything about religion. And he said, if you sit in on three there is a Rockefeller Brothers Fund for the Negro Ministry, and I can give you a scholarship. And so I said, okay, fine, I set in on three. <laughs> when he got my transcript, fortunately, Howard wasn't very efficient. And so he didn't get my transcript until it was almost too, Christmas. Until it's too late. Yeah. And he said, you know, you're very lucky or blessed. I said both. He said that we didn't get your transcript before we met you. Yes. Uh, but now, uh, so, you know, I, I got even got a break to get in graduate school. And so I figured the Lord was going to look out for me. 
I had noted in, in my little black book here something that Andy said in an interview that I saw a long time ago. He said, illustrating what he's just told us, I'm a leaf in a divine wind just floating from one thing to another. He also said in the same interview, I felt an invisible hand has guided me and my life from within. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and one of the things, I had two, two, my two professors were Quakers. And one of them introduced me to a Quaker by the name of Thomas Kelly. And there was a book that he gave me called Holy Obedience. And I can almost remember the, the, the verse. It said, deep within us all, there's an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a quiet place, a speaking voice. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing against our time-torn lives, warming us to an astounding destiny for ourselves. But I, I, I say that that's true of everybody. I, I know you do. Yeah. We'll come back to this, Andy. Mm-hmm. This is important. But in 1954, you did go to Marion, Alabama. And I think you took a church there. You had not graduated from the seminary yet. But I went tell, there because... Tell us about that. I went there. Well, my daddy and I had a fuss when I was... He, he said, I can't send you to divinity school. Uh... Only preachers I know are poor or crooked. <laughs> and I don't want you to be either. So if you're going to try to be a preacher, study religion, you've got to do it on your own. Uh, and so it was in that sense that I, was, uh, I had a job for the summer in New York and planning to run with the Pioneer Track Club because uh, I was looking forward to the next Olympics. And um, my... Uh, Conference superintendent called and said, I need you to come to a little church. Uh, there are plenty of people who can work in a New York settlement house, and there are plenty of, everybody's trying to get to the Olympics, but there's nobody to go to this little church. Uh, and if you turn it down, the church closes down. And I said, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and... I mean, I, I, had to, I had to go. And, um, and who did you meet there? Well, I didn't, the thing was, it proves what I was beginning to feel. I walked into this house with the address they gave me, and where I was first family that I was supposed to eat dinner with. And there was a Bible on the table, New Testament marked up. Uh, Revised Standard Version, this was 1952, the Revised Standard Version didn't come out until 1951. And we way back in the country, and somebody's got a brand new Bible already underlined. Then there was a senior life-saving certificate on the wall and a basketball letter. And so I asked the lady of the house, I said, Who's, who does this belong to? said, well, I have three daughters. And I said, well, which one is which? She said, oh, all three of these belong to my baby daughter. I said, well... I mean, I still hadn't met her, hadn't seen her, but I took genetics and I had seen her mother and father. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
In fact, her, her father looked like a black Clark Gable. Uh, better looking even than my son-in-law's. Uh, Hillary, who thinks he's good looking. Well, who doesn't know he's good looking? That's the other thing. Uh, but, um, and, and they were the, the nicest people. Um, and I decided right then and there, well, this is what God sent me here for, is it, to marry this woman. Andy, is, is it true or fiction that when you actually met Jean Childs, she was milking a cow? Yeah. First time I visited the house when she was there, she was barefooted in the backyard, uh, some cut-off blue jeans and a sweatshirt, and she was milking a cow. And stupid jackass that I was, <laughs> I just thought this was the most beautiful woman in the world, and I wanted to take a picture of her. And I went back to my car to get my camera, and she became furious. She said, if we didn't need this milk, I'd pour it all over you. <laughs> Andy, you, you told me once, you actually told me once that if you hadn't married Jean, nobody would have ever heard of you. Well, that's probably true. And I say that, I said that more in connection with Martin. Uh, I said, Martin, because Coretta came from that same little town. And it was the meanest, bitterest little southern town you ever want to see. But it had very educated black people. Uh, because there had been a college that had been set up uh, right after the Civil War. In fact, they wrote to Boston during the Civil War uh, saying that they had some land. And would the missionaries come down and help them build a college? And so it was a strong black community but it was a mean white community. It was where Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed in the Selma campaign. Uh, and we'll say more about that maybe. But um, Coretta and Jean had really personal, ruthless, and bitter experiences with racism. Three of Coretta's businesses, daddy's business, had been destroyed uh, by Klan types. Uh, Jean's family had a whole block of property accumulated and somehow it was swindled out of them and her granddaddy committed suicide and uh, her, her father became an alcoholic and her mother in a vulnerable position was attacked by the conference superintendent, I mean by the school superintendent and she hit him upside the head with an umbrella uh, so she could not teach anywhere around the county. She was having to go 40, 50 miles a day to get a job. And so this was, all this was happening between the time that Jean and Coretta, they about, Coretta's older, but all of this was part of their upbringing. And so there was a determination and a commitment to put an end to racism and segregation. It was not academic or intellectual with it, them. It was personal. It was really personal. Yeah. And they didn't, I mean, they didn't want to be bothered. And I, I said, if Martin had married any of the other girls that he was going with at Boston University, or if I had married any of the girls I even dated here at Howard, uh, you never would have heard my name or his. 
And he, did, do I remember correctly or not that Juanita Abernathy, Ralph David's wife, also came from Perry County? It, Juanita Abernathy came from Perry County. Yeah. So, it's now, really rather remarkable. Well, that's when I started realizing that uh, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. Yes. So there was something happening here that I didn't understand, but I was going to go with the flow because it was working. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, in 1955, uh, upon your ordination, you and Gene moved to Thomasville, Georgia. Thomasville and Beechton. And Beechton, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Tell us what it was like to move to South Georgia in 1955. Well, you know, I was always comfortable in the South. And I, my father, as a dentist during the Depression, uh, was given a trailer by Huey Long. And so he used to go all over Louisiana fixing people's teeth for nothing. And I had been all over Louisiana, and Louisiana was as bad as Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. So I, w I was very comfortable in the rural South, uh, and she was too. Uh, but we met some of the best people. Now, the truth of it is, I was wondering what the Lord was doing with me, because all the other guys in seminary got off of churches in uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Newark, New Jersey, Gary, Indiana. Uh, there were lots of churches around. Why did they send me down to this godforsaken place with seven old ladies in one church <laughs> and uh, about four families in the other church? And none of the other guys were married. And I had a wife... You know, uh, and... Uh, well, maybe that's why they sent them to the big cities. Well, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I, I didn't know why I was there. Uh, and yet, those were three of the best years of my life. Both Andrea and Lisa were born there. Yes. And I, I, I tell the story about not having any money and uh, going to the hospital and, and asking you know, how do I pay for it? And they said, well, you have to give us a $50 deposit. And when I went back uh, to check out, uh, they said, well, she had no anesthetic and no, uh, she had a natural childbirth, so there were no expenses. Uh, so you got an $18 refund. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip I'm gonna skip forward. But but, now, but Andy, wait wait just a minute now. <laughs> you you were there for about three years, as you say. Then you went to New York to work for the National Council of Churches. You were in New York, I think, until about 1961. The Nashville sit-ins occurred, mm -hmm. and and you and Gene. Perhaps on Gene's suggestion. I'm not sure. It wasn't a suggestion. <laughs> in fact, I think what Gene said was, after the sit-ins in Nashville, it's time for us to go back south. Yeah, she didn't want to go north. And uh, I was offered a job as an, at the National Council of Churches as associate director of the youth work department. And um, she hated New York. And she agreed that we would go. We would stay no longer than five years. 
And this was just coming up on four years. Yes. So Let she saw, we, we really, and I agreed, we saw, you know, we saw John Lewis and Bevel and Kelly Miller Smith and Bernard Lafayette, Diane Nash, uh, Marion Barry, all on television as students changing the world. And they were so sweet and smart and dedicated. And she said, no, we have to go back. And I said, okay. You went back in 1961. 61. When did you meet Dr. King? Well, I had met him before I left the South at Talladega College. And we were both uh, invited by the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity to a religious emphasis week. And I always accused them of inviting him and not thinking he wouldn't come. And they invited me as a backup. <laughs> uh, and both of us showed up. And then he realized that Gene and Coretta knew each other and invited us to stop off in Montgomery on the way back. And so I knew him, and she said, you know, when you go back, you need to write Dr. King and see if he has a position for you. Yes. And in 1961, or thereabout, you became assistant to Dr. King. Well... Is that right? No, that's not quite right, because... Wyatt Walker was Dr. King's assistant, and he wrote back and said that he didn't know me. He said, no, we, we really don't need anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I had already put my house up for sale, uh, and I'd already quit my job and told them I was going back to the South. And, but it was, uh, I again. I think in this instance you had gotten a little ahead of the Lord. No, because the Lord had it worked out. I was, I was running... I was under pressure because Jean was finishing her master's on the 30th of, of uh, due on the 30th of May, and Paula was due on the 6th of June. <laughs> and we were trying, I mean, we were trying to, to get things, we, we were ready to go. Yes, yes. And so after I sold my house, quit my job, and didn't have a job, I went to the United Church of Christ. And uh, they said they would take over this program that was going to Highlander Folk School <clears throat> if I would be the administrator. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Uh, so I went, I went to Atlanta with my own foundation grant. Yes. And, that, and, and when I got to Dr. King's office, uh, I promptly stayed in my place. Until Dora McDonald, his secretary, uh, said, um, Dr. King said he read a letter that you had written, uh, and it was well written. Would you mind helping me answer some of his mail? And I said, no, because Gene was in Marion with the babies, and I was here in the YMCA in Atlanta. And so she gave me a stack of mail about so high. <laughs> And I took it home and, uh, you know, answered the letters and uh, gave them to her. And he was so surprised when she typed up all these letters and he began to read them. Uh, he then started asking me to do more stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. In 1964, I think, you became executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership yep. Conference. Mm -hmm. um, and for that period of, from the early 60s until Dr. King's death in 19, um, 1968, 
you were side by side with him practically everywhere, were you not? Pretty much. And even before that, I started working more closely with him. And, uh, and you know, and he, he had, he didn't believe in hierarchy. And he, he believed in sort of, everybody sort of working together. And uh, it was a team. He said it was a team of wild horses. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, the problem was that Wyatt Walker tried to, he got frustrated because he couldn't organize them and he couldn't discipline them. And Martin said, you know, you almost have to be clinically insane to do what we're doing. And you have to respect that insanity uh, as a a blessing. Andy, I've, I've read and heard that to some degree, and in many, many ways, you were a kind of contrarian among Dr. King's advisors. Well, I had to be. And I got, you know, they would come up with the craziest stuff. (laughs) See, and, and, well, Jose had been almost killed in a a foxhole in, in Europe. Everybody was killed in the foxhole but him. And then after... They hauled away the bodies and found out he was still alive. And 11 months in a hospital in England, he's going back to uh, Georgia with survivor's guilt. And as an Army veteran with, on a crutch, uh, he got a glass of water. He drank from a white water fountain. And some kids roughed him up. And he decided that he was saved to give his life for the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, this was like in the right after the war in the, the, the 40s. Well, he married a wonderful woman who sent him back to, to school. He got a degree in chemistry and got a master's at AU in chemistry. But he was still trying to figure out how to get killed. <laughs> I mean, you know, and so when, when he was always doing wild things, see, and so... He kept getting fired from the Department of Agriculture, and finally, Martin said, why don't we just hire him? So (laughs) we brought him on the staff, and uh, I mean, well, even Bob Green, who was a professor, dean of the School of of, uh, Urban Affairs at Michigan State University, came south and wanted that crazy. You know, they wanted that, and that was part of our tension with SNCC. Young people felt that they were going to change the world in the summer, that they took off. And, uh, and they were, were pushing to do it now. And that's what we said. We want freedom and we want it now. And so I knew the South, and I wasn't anxious to get killed. <laughs> and so I was always against the crazy things they were saying and once I agreed with him, and Martin stopped the meeting and took me back into his office and said, look, if you're going to go along with them, I don't need you. <laughs> he said, you don't understand your role. He said, your role is to come down as far on the right as you can and argue against, he said, the further you go to the right, the more room you give me in the middle. And then I have the freedom to come down where I think is tactically appropriate. And he said, you understand that? I said, yeah. He said, okay. We went back in the meeting, and then I, 
so I got my, back into my uh, contrarian position. Oh. Andy, you just, you just mentioned. But then I didn't get to go to jail. See, he wouldn't let me go to jail. Yeah. All of them had been to jail and had been beaten up, and they were. And so I became the Uncle Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andy, you, you, you mentioned uh, getting killed. And, uh, and we all know from reading history that there were dangerous times in those days. Dangerous places, dangerous people dangerous situations. Did Dr. King ever talk about his death? All the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a daily conversation. But you see, his home had been bombed. Uh, He'd been sued. He'd been stabbed. Uh, He was picketing in Atlanta. And uh, they took him over to the Cal County when they took, let the other students go. They put him in the the Cal prison. And at 8 o'clock at night, They put him in chains, hand and foot, wrapped in chains, laid him in the back of a paddy wagon with a German shepherd and drove him from Atlanta down to Reedsville, which was about 300 miles on bad roads. And he said every time he'd roll over near the dog, the dog would growl. But he couldn't stop. He was rolling around, and he was sure he was going to his death. See? The other thing is when he was stabbed... To get the knife out, they left a cross in his chest mm-hmm. as the, you know, when they had to open up his chest. Mm-hmm. And black folk keloid. So he had a visible cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, look, every morning I face the cross. Mm-hmm. He said, I know this day has to be my last. He said, but now I know when it's my time, I'm going. But most of you all are so anxious to get your picture taken and get some credit for something. It, you're going to jump in front of him and take a bullet for me. <laughs> so he, and then he, the way he dealt with it, he said, but don't worry. He said, um, I will preach you into heaven. I know, <laughs> I know you ain't no good, but when I get through preaching, see, the Lord will let you in. So don't worry about getting killed. See? Mm-hmm. But he would, I mean, he, he, your funeral eulogy would be more like a Richard Pryor, uh, Eddie Murphy routine, you know, than anything in church. But he was deliberately doing that. And he, at some time or other, he preached everybody's funeral. And it was his way of making us laugh at our own death. Yes. But he was always aware that it was his death that was the one that was most likely. And it was. You, you said, I want to share with the audience something that you said about Dr. King after his death. You said he was the chosen one whom God had ordained. He was the one uniquely prepared to move history, not me. You also said Martin's spirit has accomplished more in American politics than his life ever could have. And And I think that's true. And I think we saw this morning this monument rising up on the Tidal Basin. And uh, we've heard people in Berlin and when the wall came down in South Africa and everywhere singing, We Shall Overcome. And and even the Egyptians and the, the 
the Libyans by starting their, their demonstrations at the hour of prayer. Uh, we learned all the time, one of the reasons we've had people kneel down and pray was policemen, the meanest policemen, you know, can't shoot you on your knees. Uh, we used to say Bevel and I didn't get to go to, across Edmund Pettus Bridge. And they said it was, it was good that we didn't because we'd had everybody get, get down on their knees. Uh, and uh, even Jim Clark couldn't have run horses over people who were on their knees. Andy, you, you used a phrase that I want you to tell us about and, and define it for us. You've referred to the people in the movement in those days having freedom highs. Talk about that. Yeah. Every, everybody wanted to be free. And when we would start doing something, well, let's take James Bevel in, in uh, Birmingham. After we had won in Birmingham, we had about 5,000 students that Bevel said, we're going on to Washington, let's end this thing right now. And what he, what he wanted to do was put 5,000 young people out on Highway 11 and head toward Washington. Well, how are we going to eat? Or what are we going to, he said, Gandhi didn't know how he was going <laughs> to, you know, he fashioned it after the salt march to the sea. And he said, people will feed us along the way, I guarantee you. Uh, well, where are we going to sleep? And, you know, it's, it's mountains. Uh, don't worry about that. The Lord will take care of it. He took care of, of the children of Israel, and he took care of Gandhi's salt march to the sea. You, you don't trust in the Lord enough. See? And then you, you want to reason everything out. Well, uh, finally, A. Philip Randolph heard about this and sent by Rustin down, and that was where the March on Washington came from. Mm-hmm. See? Uh, it was an attempt to, uh, to put a structure to what was a wonderful idea, but which could have been a disaster if we had just started walking down the road. You mentioned, you mentioned Gandhi. <clears throat> you mentioned Gandhi just now. And you once said, I'm quoting you, something rather remarkable, I think. Gandhi spurred me toward Christ. He translated Jesus' idea of nonviolence into a political action program. Gandhi applied the forgiveness Jesus taught to the British Empire. Before my readings of Gandhi, I couldn't see what difference Christianity made. I think that's quite true. I, I do, uh, I have learned to appreciate Jesus uh, through Gandhi. And I, there's something about the spirituality of Hinduism that's different than the materialism of America. And, um, you know, Gandhi's also started in South Africa. Yes. And uh, you get that same sort of spiritual concept of, of forgiveness and understanding of your enemies. Uh, in Mandela, uh, Albert Satuli, uh, uh, Paul Kagame and um, uh, Rwanda, Bishop Tutu. Uh, and, and that's the kind of Christianity you can give your life to. Uh, that's a whole lot different than anything going on in most of our churches. Uh, here lately, uh, Deepak Chopra 
has written a book called The Third Jesus mm-hmm. that, that defines sort of what I think I got from Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus, the, the physical human being that walked around the streets of Galilee, and then there's the Jesus that they wrote about in the New Testament uh, and canonized uh, in the scriptures. But then there's a spiritual Jesus which he promised would be with us always. Uh, And it's living in the spirit of Jesus because most of our churches have colonized the gospel. You know, and they twist it to their own interest and prejudices and they make it, it make it, they make it a sign and symbol of their own respect, the respectability of their own traditions and ideas. And so if it's, well, it's what the Pharisees did to Judaism. Yeah. Let's, let's which move. made the prophets awful mad. Yes. <laughs> You've made a lot of people mad from time to time. From time to time. From time to time. Um, your career, your, your, you were elected to Congress three, three times, 1972, 1974, again in 1976. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I want to get to your UN years quickly. But tell us one thing, one interesting thing that your experience in the United States House of Representatives taught you. One, it taught me... Um it taught me how great and wonderful this country is. And how, because I went to the Congress not as a Democrat, but as a pastor yes. of 435 members of the House of Representatives. And I, you know, I, I got along well with all of them uh, and saw them as my, my ministry. Uh, and I, I learned from my conservative friends a different point of view, and I shared some of my views. And, and I, but I was on the banking committee, and I learned what's wrong with the world now, I think. And I think I was at the crime scene uh, when um, Nixon encouraged the banking committee to end the Bretton Woods agreements. Now, I didn't know what that was. And uh, I asked Ed Koch. He didn't know what it was. And uh, Walter Fontra was next. He didn't know what it was. Nobody knew what we were talking about. But that was an agreement that was made under the Roosevelt era, or Truman, in 1944, uh, right after the Second World War, which tied everybody's currency to gold, I mean to the dollar. And the dollar was guaranteed by gold. What they did was they created a stable economic order, which from 1944 to 1974 allowed the whole world to prosper at 6 to 12% a year. And they were changing it, and nobody asked any questions but me. And I, I said, well, I didn't say why you want to change it if it's not fixed, if it's not broken, but I said to Arthur Burns, Isn't, uh, aren't people going to play politics with our currency if it's not stabilized by something. 
And his answer was, young man, you'll soon learn that the dollar does not need you to defend it. But oil was $2.50 a barrel then. And it fluctuated between $2.50 and $3.50. Now it's gone up as high as $120 a barrel. Uh, And uh, it seems now to me that we went off the gold standard onto the oil standard. Whereas we controlled one agreement and we have no control over this other one. Enough. I wanted you all to see that Andy, among other things, is also an economist. (laughs) Andy, you were one of the first, and I think, honestly, the most prominent African-American political figure to endorse Jimmy Carter in the earliest days of his bid for the Democratic nomination. Virtually nobody in the Black Caucus in the Congress supported him in those very early days. Why did you do that? Because the Black Caucus used to meet in a room about half the size of this stage. And 20 of us would get in a room and we invited all the candidates in. Every liberal white candidate came in and they agreed with everything we said and asked them. But they were visibly nervous when they got in a room with 20 black people. Uh, Jimmy Carter didn't agree with anybody on anything. You know, he was against Bussin. He was against the Humphrey Hawkins bill. Uh, I mean, everything that all the liberals had agreed on, he disagreed with. But he was so comfortable. And, I mean, he was so so at home. And his answers were not ideological, but they were very pragmatic. And I, I respected him. I mean, I, I didn't support him because I was prejudiced against Southerners. And I didn't think that there was any Southerner smart enough to run this country. And I realized that here we had a Southerner who was not only as smart, but smarter. Uh, than the other guys we, we, we'd we met with. And then when he got attacked uh, by uh, the Village Voice, mm-hmm. uh, you or Jody or somebody called and said, can you answer, would you want to mind writing a letter mm-hmm. say, you know, answering this? And they were calling him a racist and this, that, and the other. Well, actually, Morehouse had given him a co- uh, an honorary degree. And the Morehouse citation... Uh, Dr. Gloucester did a, was a brilliant writer and poet, and the, the citation was such that uh, it, he'd researched and elaborated all of the things that Carter had done very quietly. As governor. As governor, like quietly by executive order, uh, empowering every high school principal as a voter registrar. Uh, and giving them the power to register every senior from 17 and, at 17 and a half, so that as long as they were going to be 18 by November, but they registered everybody in their senior year. Uh, well, that was what we had to march and people died for. But he never made a fuss about it, see? And I, I knew all of those things that he had done quietly. Uh, Rita Samuels over here went in and uh, uh, cussed him out, uh, when, when he was governor and uh, because it, there were no black people's pictures up 
uh, in the governor's, I mean, in, in the state capitol. And so he put her in charge of uh, putting in, she put three black portraits uh, in the in the Georgia State Capitol, which is still there. In, the, in my experience, when you give Rita Samuel something to do, it gets done. <laughs> Rita, it's nice to see you. Annie, your tenure until August of 1979 as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations was an extraordinary period, I think, in your life. You became a world figure, literally. You spoke out... <clears throat> in the most eloquent ways about the situation in Africa against apartheid in South Africa, about human rights across the globe. I remember one time in the summer of 1979, I was watching you on Meet the Press, and, and, you, and you touched the third rail of American politics when you criticized the Israeli, the Israeli government for being, in your words, stubborn and intransigent on some issue at the time. I know that you had a sort of rocky road with the rather staid and orderly State Department from time to time. Always. <laughs> and, and finally, in, in the late part, the late summer of 1979, was when you, in what was a quiet diplomatic move on your part, trying to avoid a vote in the Security Council, you had a, a private meeting with a representative, the UN Observer, as he was called, of the PLO. And that resulted in your submitting your resignation because it violated explicit State Department rules and regulations. Well, it really didn't, see, because as the president of the Security Council, I had an exemption from that. Uh, but that was a technical issue. But I was trying... But I had met with Moshe Diane at Harry Belafonte's house for four hours one night. Uh, no, it was Shimon Paris at Harry's house. Then I'd, I'd, I'd had lunch, long lunch with Moshe Diane. B- both of them asking me to get involved in the Middle East issue. And I said, no, I can't do that. Yes. Uh, that, you know, the State Department's job and President and Cyrus Vance. But it was the Palestinians that were supposed to give their report on Palestinian rights in May. They put it off in June when the British were there, they, to June when the British were there. Then they put it off uh, again. And the British ambassador said, I think they are trying to set you up. I know they wouldn't bring it up under my jurisdiction, and I know they're not going to bring it up under the Russians. Uh, so you better prepare. Uh, they're going to bring this up in August. Well, nothing happens in August at the UN. And our government was in disrepair. I think that was when you became the chief of staff. And uh, there was a big shuffle. Uh, three or four cabinet members were asked to resign. And uh, the president made this terrible malaise speech that people, you know, maligned him for, and I was meeting with them to tell them, because it was a resolution that the Palestinians had written, which is exactly what we're trying to get them to agree with now. 
And the guy that I met with was a tenured professor at Columbia University in English literature and a Christian. And he felt that, and, and I did too, that if I vetoed this, uh, it was going to just strengthen the hands of the radicals in the Palestinians and that they were putting it up, saving it for me because they wanted to discredit me. Uh, and it was, it was the Palestinians that set me up. So, and uh, I wrote my resignation when it became public because I had read a book by Ted Koppel and uh, Marvin Kalb uh, in The National Interest where Kissinger met with uh, Arafat in a secret meeting in Jerusalem and when it leaked out there was a massive uh, Jewish uh, protest in front of the United Nations, um, almost a half a million people. Well, I had that picture in my mind, but if I had done that, if that had happened while I was there, there was going to be another half a million black folk from Harlem and Brooklyn were going to come down. Yeah. And it wasn't about me. It was trying to stop a riot in front of the UN. Uh, President Carter gave Andy, and he did resign in August of 1979, and in 1980, President Carter gave Andy the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Well, before that. <laughs> before that, he did something that I appreciated even more. Uh, he gave me an airplane. <laughs> uh, one of our government uh, model 707s and, and we took a business delegation uh, around Africa uh, to promote trade and I think that was where we kind of laid the, tr the foundation for some of the Africa Trade and Opportunity Act and Africa Growth and Opportunity Act and, and we, it really allowed me to have another visit to Africa to explain uh, what we were doing, why I was leaving and to keep our Africa program uh, together. Yes. Um, we're very close to when we have to close this down. Um, I want to just mention that when Andy was elected mayor in 1981, mayor of Atlanta, of course, he was elected with 55% of the vote. When he ran for re-election in 1985, he was elected with 80%. During the period that Andy was mayor, my figures are approximately right, not far off. He and his administration brought about, not, not counting the Olympics that were to come soon, over $70 billion of in capital investment into the city of Atlanta. When you include the economic and financial impact of the 1996 Olympics for the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia, that $70 billion figure gets to be about a $100 billion figure. So he was one of the truly extraordinary mayors, not only of the city of Atlanta, but in the country during his service of eight years. 
Andy, I want to I want to come in the closing minutes that we have to to some things that <clears throat> that I know you believe, and I want you to comment briefly on on them. Three things that I've heard you say time and again. Start where you are. Follow your clues. Be a seeker. Come in. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think people decide what they want to be, and that's stupid. <laughs> because that's the influence of the past. It might come from your teachers, your parents, but you're not going to be living in the past. You're going to be living in the future, and nobody knows the future. So you encourage your children, and you allow your children to be seekers. And you, you, you don't try to live their lives out of your own frustrations. And that's what my daddy was doing in some ways. Uh, he wanted me to be safe and secure uh, and be a dentist. And that, I didn't want that safety and security. You've also said there could not have been a civil rights movement without love. There cannot be faith or hope without love. There can be no positive future without love. Comment on that. Well, love is three things. Uh, Being present to. If you love your children, you want to be present to them. That is, listen to them. And so, when you say love your enemies, it means listen to your enemies. Be present. Be with them. Uh, the second phase is understanding. Uh, you make every effort to understand your opposition. See? Uh, and then, if you really understand your opposition and you're really present with them, and this includes your wife <laughs> and your children, say you realize that... Uh, you're as much involved and to blame. Dr. King used to say that we can't blame white folks for segregation. A man can't ride your back unless you bend over and let him. Uh, In marriage relationships, the disharmony and disequilibrium always causes tensions, but it takes two to collaborate with that. And if, if, uh, uh, I mean, there was never a chance of my... uh, say, having or, or, say, winning an argument with either of the women I've been married to. <laughs> uh, because they always have, if there's a man's position, there's a woman's position. See? And you end up having to forgive, first of all, forgive yourself most of the time for not having seen what created the problem. And you realize that in some way, every injustice, as Paul Kagame said, there's nobody innocent 
in Rwanda. We all either saw this and did nothing, or we were stupid and didn't, were too insensitive and didn't see it, or we got scared and ran, but there's nobody free of guilt. And you can't run a life with guilt. And so forgiveness is necessary for your own survival. And you really can't forgive others if you don't forgive yourself. And, and when we say I can't forgive that, it's because we really can't forgive ourselves for being complicit to it in some way. And so uh, forgiveness is, I mean, Bishop Tutu's book is There's No Future Without Forgiveness. And, and that's just, uh, that's just the way it is. Andy, you, you said in this wonderful book that you're going to be signing copies of shortly, conversations between a civil rights legend and his godson on the journey ahead. You said, I think we have to plan to live to be 100. The human body has enough energy and capacity to sustain us for a century if we take care of it. It takes us that long to solve so many of the complex problems that we have. Do you plan to live to be 100? I think we all have to. Um, first place, most of us wasted the first uh, <laughs> at least 20 years. Uh, and, and it took us till we were about 40 before we had any understanding of what we were doing. I always look to... Um, Albert Schweitzer, because he didn't get his life together until he was 55. Right. Uh, and so I always gave, and even Jesus didn't get his life together until he was 30. You don't hear anything about Jesus between 12 and 30. And that's why I say, don't worry about your children. Even Jesus was a goof off somewhere. <laughs> you know? If, if he had been performing miracles in the temples or, or, or doing anything worthwhile, they would have recorded it. See, but whatever he did, whatever he did, they didn't want that in the Bible, uh, and that is not sacrilege, because we believe that Jesus was sent by God on Earth as a human being, who took him till he was thirty to realize he was God's child. It's going to take your children at least that long, and some of you all are grown and forty and seven five to 75, and still haven't realized you're God's children, <clears throat> and that God has a purpose for you. And whenever you realize that, uh, now I'm looking to Moses, because Moses was 80. <laughs> uh, you know, before he figured out what God wanted him to do. And uh, he was 80 when he started leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Yes, sir. Uh, and I got, you know, 11 months to go. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I also say to my friends as they retire and start taking it easy in their later years uh, that Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born and uh, Sarah was in her 90s, so y'all be careful. <laughs> uh, Andy has said, has said and has written, my purpose has been to serve humanity. He's also said, I try to serve people and respond to life one day at a time. 
and I learn about my faith and spirituality day by day.